Good morning. Nice to see you all this morning. My name's Tom. It's great to be here with you this morning. I'm going to be uh, continuing our preaching series. Now, if this is your first time here this morning, if you've missed the last few weeks, we're currently going through a series that teaches us how to pray. Just press record. Okay, I know how long this is going to take now. Um, In the first two sections of the Bible, what is called the Old Testament, that is the Old Covenant with God, we find the book of the Psalms, which is a collection of 150 poems that express a wide variety of emotions. We have been learning to pray through using this wonderful book, and this week is the penultimate in the series, and we'll be looking at how to pray whilst waiting. Um, Just as an aside, um, following on from that time of worship, I think that the general theme coming through was just how much God desires us, and just how much he really wants to be with us and meet with us. And it it couldn't have been planned any better, because this this whole preach, essentially in a nutshell, it's it's how we are to respond to that and to, to desire him back. So it's, it's just amazing just sitting here. Gordon knew I was going to be preaching from Psalm 126, but that was it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just bear that in mind as I, as I kind of bring this message this morning. Um, my one hope for this talk is that it, it will help you grow in your desire with God, whether you desire him or not yet, whether you have found yourself stuck in your walk and you need, to be move, uh, you need to move on, or whether you're going great guns or whatever, my prayer is that you will discover or rediscover a fresh desire to know Jesus. So there you have it. My cards are on the table, as it were. I won't be paid for this, or for the hours that I have sunk into the preparation. <laughs> in fact, being self-employed has actually cost me money. <laughs> so in a way, I've brought you this message, and I've paid for it. <laughs> But this is my motivation this morning, and I'm going to spend the next 25 minutes or so explaining why I truly believe this is important for you, and just why I care so much. I would like to emphasize that this platform does not represent any special privilege or status, and I'm really keen for those of you who do not know me to understand that, there is, that those, those of us who get up here on a Sunday morning to teach um, and to lead, we're, we're no different to the rest of the people in this room. We have our fears and our failings, we have our insecurities, We are not perfect people leading perfect lives, and we desperately need God just as much as the next person. Indeed, the more I've worked on this preach, the more I've realized just how much more I need to practice what it is that I'm about to preach. If you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Psalm 126. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. It will be displayed on the screen behind me so you can follow along. Now, I must confess that before I studied this content to bring it to you, along with a large number of other Psalms, because there's quite a lot, I've never read this psalm before. I'm sure I'm not the only one to find psalms a struggle. I'm a stories kind of guy. I love history and a page-turning narrative. And much to the dismay of my wife, poetry, generally, has always seemed a bit naff and pretentious to me. (laughs) I figured that, I know you're sad, (laughs) I'm getting better, I'm getting better. But I figured that as God is the creator and author of all things and has made everyone differently, then that's why there's poetry in the Bible, right? I mean, it's essentially for others and not really for me. But funnily enough, when I think about it, probably the most impacted I've been by God's word has actually been through poetry. I don't have time to read it to you this morning, but I remember the first impression that the end of the book of Ecclesiastes left upon me, the master-crafted symbolism, the reality of how meaningless the pursuits of man is without God as the goal, how it is like spitting in the wind a sobering reminder of what befalls us all in old age. It's crucial that we realise the importance of this book, and in particular the Psalms. As we've already heard in previous weeks, 
The rest of the Bible is God speaking to us. The book of the Psalms is how we are to respond to him in prayer. It's not just important that we get our heads around the Psalms. It's vital in our walk with God. Let's read the Psalm together. So 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with him. Now perhaps your immediate thoughts of this psalm is, it's about praying for as much as you can get. God, restore our fortunes. Give us our sheaths. This psalm initially sounds like a prayer to get loads of stuff. And it is, in a sense, but not as you're probably thinking. Psalm 126 actually addresses the challenge, what should be our deepest desire? Now, there's quite a bit of unusual language in this psalm, so it makes sense to start here and get our heads around the context and some of the words used. As we heard a couple of weeks ago, James came and taught us that Zion is the name given to the place on earth where God dwelt. Zion, the holy city that God founded, the city of David, the temple of Jerusalem where God was brought in the Ark of the Covenant. In this psalm, the people of Israel, possibly during or following exile, are imploring God for the restoration of his dwelling place amongst them, bringing the prosperity of the city of David or the temple, etc., with him. With the coming of Jesus and the New Testament, stroke New Covenant, the second section of the Bible, the temple has been destroyed, and Zion is now the reference to the people of God, that is, Jesus dwelling in us. Under the new covenant of Jesus, this restored fortune that is mentioned is for us. When we seek God for the restored fortunes of Zion, we are actually crying out to God for the benefit of the people of God. But what does it mean to ask God to restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev? Now, your Bible may have a different translation than Negev. Both of these names are given to the arid southern region of Israel, and they literally mean to be dry. Were a dry gully in the Negev to run as a stream, it would turn the land green with plants, a restoration of Eden, as it were. Then, of course, we have a reference of a sower, of reaping and of sheaths. For Israel, the words of verse 1 become a prayer. Show us mercy and restore to us a good year for crops. Show us mercy. God's people would take encouragement from previous acts of mercy and pray for more of it, enjoying the harvest with shouts of joy at the abundance of food. You'll also notice in your Bibles that this psalm has a header, a song of ascents, or a psalm of ascents. Now Israel was God's chosen people, and he had made them a a promise, hence the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. But as we see from reading through the Old Testament, Israel time and time again finds herself in idolatry. The chosen people of God just can't seem to listen to him for long, and therefore God's judgment follows, and they are eventually taken captive by a rival empire, Babylonia, which is modern-day Iraq. So whilst in captivity, the two competing realities go head-to-head. God promises greatness and blessing, but the Israelites are surrounded by turmoil and captivity. God says one thing, but they are experiencing another. And eventually, these two competing realities come lead to one central question. Is God going to keep his promise and do what he said? 
these two realities and this one question form the background to the psalm of ascents, this section. And it begins in Psalm 120 and it leads all the way through to 134. And it's joined under this idea reflecting its name to ascend. It means to step up or come out. And in the wider context of the Psalter, these psalms envision the day when Israel comes out of their foreign exile. The hope is focused on the deliverance the Messiah will bring, rescuing his people from their captivity and restoring Jerusalem to glory and peace. The psalm can come across a little nostalgic in the first half. God, restore our fortunes. And it's almost, it's almost depressing, really, as the Israelites are mourning the loss of the good times. But thankfully, there is promise of future goodness in the second half. As we have seen through this teaching series, the big question is, how do we pray this psalm in Christ? Think about it for a second. How do we actually do that? We have references to some streams in the desert, some Israelites asking for their fortunes to be restored, some nostalgia about the good times, some thanks for God's mercy, and then lots of food. Where is Jesus in this psalm? Now, in the in this instance, our tendency is to often tack Jesus on to the end of a psalm. That is, we read and then pray it, and then say something like, all the promises of God are yes in Christ, I am in Christ, therefore this is true of me. And whilst this is true, we're often not sure why it is true. In short, it's true because these prayers are supremely the prayers of Jesus. He is the conductor of this psalm, just as every other psalm. He is leading us in the song as our representative head, our king and song leader. Remember, we are just the choir. It is Jesus' song that is being performed, and we join in. Another way of looking at this is to imagine Jesus as the conductor of a large orchestra. Here we have the Son of God in the centre, and he is conducting a wonderful symphony, which is attracting many people from all around the world. The amazing vibes trigger deep emotions in us, and we take that first step of faith. Now imagine you came along, and you started praying the classic prayers of I need this, and I need that, and considering our own agenda and our own needs, the so-called slot machine prayers. It's like we come into the auditorium totally enamoured by the melody and then start playing your instrument completely separate to what the conductor is orchestrating and making an absolute racket. I can imagine Jesus doing that kind of rapping on the, on the thing. Like, wait, wait, no, you chime in with my conducting or it's going to sound terrible. And this is how we join in with him and his church playing a melody that he has designed in unison. And this is what it's like when we pray the psalms through Christ. We are joining in with his melody, his life, his pain, and his suffering, and his joy. When we pray the psalms, here is Jesus in the centre. He is the conductor, the choir master. We can relate to some of the psalms. Jesus relates to them all. Going back to the psalm then, the surprise that unlocks this psalm is that the urgent prayer of verse 4 follows the celebration of verses 1 to 3. Now, we might expect it to be the other way round, looking back probably to return from exile, perhaps to some other restoration, the people of God remembering their joy. But this joy reveals their heart for Zion, that the people of God should prosper matters more to them than anything, including their personal circumstances. It It results first in joyful hearts. So at the first of verse 1, it says, like those who dream. And then in tongues that praise the covenant God in great international crescendo in verse 2 and 3. Jesus too cared more for the prosperity of God's people than anything else because he knew that this would bring worldwide praise to his Father. We too learn to rejoice in the restoration of the people of Christ because we also know that this will bring praise to the Father. 
This should be our deepest desire. Why then the prayer of verse 4, which seems to ask God to do what he has already done, to restore the fortunes of his people? Well, because like the Negrev in the verse 4, rain-fueled waters are followed by summer dryness. The church of God is never more than intermittently and partially restored in this age. Whatever restoration there has been in the old covenant days, it is at best partial and always followed by a harder day, as was the period after the exile, for example. When Jesus was a baby, his parents took him to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, as was the law at the time. And in Luke 2, verse 22 to 38, we introduced to a couple of very holy people, Simeon and Anna. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Luke 2, 28. Simeon took the baby Jesus up in his arms. He took the baby Jesus up in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. A little later, we meet the prophetess, Anna, a widow who never left the temple of the Lord, but she worshipped there night and day. So pretty holy, pretty holy. Verse 38 describes Anna giving thanks to God for the baby Jesus and spoke about him to all that were looking around for the redemption of Israel. Verse 4 of 100, uh, Psalm 126, on the lips of a Simeon or an Anna, was a prayer answered only when Jesus came. On the lips of Jesus, it became a prayer for God's kingdom finally to come. It is this on our lips today, a longing not only for a partial revival of God's people, but ultimately for the final revival in the return of Jesus Christ. We look back with wonder and joy at the first coming of Jesus, and we long for his return. Christ was not after fortune in the possession sense. Jesus was and is in the business of saving souls. We are his sheaths. His sown seed is the word of, work, uh, the word of God at work in us. Now, you may have heard of the parable of the sower, which we can find at the beginning of Mark 4. And Jesus is teaching a large number of people, and he's, he's kind of standing in a boat <laughs> in the sea. And he's teaching a large crowd as they're on the shore listening to him. And in this one, he, he refers to uh, a sower going out to sow the seeds. So Mark 4, verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and one hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears... To hear, let him hear. Now, in agricultural terms, a typical yield uh, ranged from about fivefold to fifteenfold. Um, tenfold was considered a very good crop. You can see just how a yield of thirty or sixty or one hundred times fold represents the blessing of God. Verse five of one hundred twenty-six, which is intensified in verse six of one hundred twenty-six, is a God-given promise that while sowing. The word of God is a grievous business, attended by much pain. It will most assuredly yield a joyful harvest, a hundredfold. Luke 6, 20, 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, 
for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus believed this. He sowed in very great pain on the cross. He did this for the joy that was set before him, as we read in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His expectation will not be in vain. As we sing this psalm together, we too are encouraged to keep sowing, even through tears. So there we have it. Hopefully we all now understand the psalm a little bit better. Let's read it again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's nice to read the psalm and understand the meaning behind it a bit better at this time around, isn't it? But the, psalm, the psalms are poems, they're songs. And just like any song, there is a tune to go with these words that we now understand a little bit better. That is, it's the emotions, the feelings being expressed. What should this psalm feel like to a Christian? Do you feel the tune of this psalm? Do the words invoke a passion for your brother and sister in Christ here in the church? Let's go back to them Israelites I described a bit earlier in their exile. I think we are not too dissimilar to them, are we? We are surrounded by a world of idols, constant demands on our attention, so much media and worldviews that seem to contradict the promise of God. If you could see the spiritual dimension, I think we would all quite literally be up to our necks, spiritually drowning in it all and kind of being swayed this way and that way by our desires and our emotions as they take us in different directions. I mentioned idols and idolatry there, but what, what is that? Well, idolatry, it starts in the heart. It's a craving, a wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything you treasure more than God. What is an idol? Well, it's the thing. It's the thing loved or the person loved more than God and wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God and enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be good exam results. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be a hobby or a band that you're listening to or a sport or your immaculate front garden I don't have one of those Georgina's shaking her head it's on the to-do list unlike God, an idol will only briefly satisfy us, never completely we will always want more and idols are not only terrible because they rob us of our true satisfaction that we find only in God but they are also really great at distracting us from the state of the world around us I think we all know this deep down and choose to ignore them because it is painful to acknowledge that if we don't have faith in, trust, the promise of God, it's so utterly bleak. A quick Google search yielded 45 Bible verses about hardness of heart. We all have those whom we love that we can see and are destined for an eternity without God. We see the hardness of their hearts, the point-blank refusal to hear the truth. And it can seem so helpless when you consider passages such as Matthew 7 verse 13 where it says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Verse 6 of Psalm 126, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. Jesus has been through this. He has seen the hardness of the hearts of man, even to the point of death. 
In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus addresses the beloved city of God. O Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together, and you were not willing. For hundreds of years, God gave the Israelites chance after chance to draw close to him, and yet they killed his prophets, and they stoned those who he sent to warn them. This was God's chosen people, whom he rescued from slavery in Egypt. He prospered them. He gave them commandments to live by. He brought them victory in battle and over surrounding powers. He even came and dwelled with them in the temple. And here we have Jesus in the holy city and later killed by the very people God chose to love so dearly. A man of sorrows, the prophet foretold, and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53 verse 3. Yes, he was a man of sorrows, but not his own. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah 54 verse, 53 verse 4. Because his love is great, he made our pains his own. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, He prayed with loud cries and tears. Jesus displayed these emotions. We need to harness ours too. It is very sad when someone is choosing the path of destruction. Of course it is. So harness this grief. Pray fervently for them and for revival. As with the Israelites, we need to ascend, to step out of this idolatry and develop a longing for Jesus and trust God's promises. We need to start embracing the rhythm that this psalm sets out for us, to join in with Jesus, to yearn for him and for his return and bring a revival, a stream in the desert place. Just as it says in Psalm 63, earnestly we should seek him, we should be thirsty for him, Our souls, our very being, should be longing for him in this dry and weary land where there is no water. Praying the Psalms is not pick and mix. That is, happy Psalms for happy occasions, etc. We must learn to pray the Psalms that God has given us and not just the ones we like. Psalm 126 can be a bit heavy, praying whilst sowing, sowing in tears, praying whilst waiting, sorry, sowing in tears. And so understandably, it's not a go-to Psalm, is it? But learning to pray this psalm in Christ, we see it in a whole new light. It brings us to a better understanding of who Jesus is, what he has gone through, and how much he loves us. We see that he is not a distant deity, but a caring and compassionate God who has suffered painful experiences just like us and desires to see the Father lifted up in praise. John 16 verse 20, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. I'll have to take the Bible's word for that one. (laughs) So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Are you starting to feel the tune? Is the psalm beginning to... evoke these emotions that Jesus was displaying? Is the thirst for revival starting to grip you? Do you recognise the urgency of praying this psalm? It's time to engage your emotions this morning, and I know that's a bit rich coming from me. (laughs) How do you feel about the church? We are a family here. Do you feel that way about those around you? Turn to the person next to you and tell them that they are highly valued as a brother and sister in Christ. Wonderful. 
It's, it's so good to hear, hear you actually, you're listening. <laughs> it's nice to get a response. How does it feel to, to hear that? Romans 8 says that we as Christians are being changed more and more each day to represent more of the image of Jesus. It says that he is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us. One day we will be joining in with all the saints in praise to the Father, but we are not there yet. Yes, there will be reaping with shouts of joy. We will be returning home with shouts of joy as Jesus brings us into paradise with him. But we are still in this dry and weary land, surrounded by thirsty sheaths. Our desire to see the church prosper should be number one priority, to see God move our heart's desire. Our deepest desire and longing should be for the restoration of the people of Christ. Jesus came to the earth to die for our sins. He did die, and he was raised to life. And Hebrews 8 verse 1 says, He is now in heaven as our great high priest. But this is not the end of the story. Jesus is returning. And we are in this interlude period of waiting for his return. We look back with wonder and joy to the first coming of Jesus, and we long for his return. It is therefore really important that we learn to pray whilst we wait, that is, waiting for rescue with Jesus and longing for his return. Now, longing for something is a, des- a yearning desire for it, and we don't really use that kind of term these days, do we? It sounds a bit desperate, doesn't it? Nothing in this world is really that great, is it? Maybe you're longing to be back home for that lovely Sunday roast. Or maybe you're just waiting, longing for me to finish. Do you long for Jesus' return? It's that funny old saying, isn't it? I'm sure many people in this room would say, yeah, I want Jesus' return, just not right now. Is that your attitude? It's so important that we pray. We pray and then we have the whole of heaven's resources at our disposal. If we do not pray, if we do not enter into Jesus' song, and when we face trouble... We have only bitterness. Hardship is key to our growth, and Jesus knows what it is to suffer, to go through pain and to sow in tears. He knows our, and feels our pain. Or more accurately, we feel his pain. We will go through hard times regardless. That's a guarantee. Prayer provides a door for the Holy Spirit to enter into our lives. Without him, we will get stuck in our ways. We will get bitter and we will die. Prayer is our lifeblood. If we pray, we live to God. If we do not pray, we don't. My early prayers used to look something like the following. God, I love you, but if you ever took so-and-so away from me, I will be furious. I will stop following you. Or, God, I really need, insert whatever it is that I'll be asking for God. Please give it to me. please God, don't let this be hard, or please God, don't let this be happening, or please God, take care of this situation for me, don't let me have to deal with this, or our Father who art in heaven, give us this day my daily bread and cake, and let no one else know about this cake, and please Father, may I have my cake and eat it, lead me not away from the things that I want, and please forgive me that even though I do not forgive others, it's your fault I'm looking over there, and it's not my fault about the sin I have over here. Thank you, Jesus, that you have died for my sins, that I may continue to sin, and the counter stays at zero. This is my kingdom. I'm the most special. Have your way here, O Lord, so long as it's what I'm all about. You are powerful, but you haven't stopped me doing what I'm I'm doing at the moment, so I've decided you are happy with me doing it. Truth be told, I fear that you will wake up one day and take away my cake, so please don't wake up. (laughs) No wonder I thought God was a distant deity. 
I was forever looking over my shoulder and expecting that he just wanted to ruin my fun. Naturally, as with everything in this world, over time the objects of our desires will fade or be taken away from us. Even the desires themselves will fade, and then we're left with a void and bitterness. This is what it is to live without, first and foremost, a desire for God, who in Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, is everlasting, who doesn't fade or grow weary. I needed to practice praying through Christ. Now I love to keep an aquarium with tropical fish. I love planning what I'm going to keep and then thinking about the type of biotype, which is the conditions of the region that the fish come through, that I need to create in order for them to make them feel at home and display all their colours and not get sick. I know it sounds rather geeky, <laughs> but don't judge me. But everyone is different, right? Everyone has something that they are passionate about. For me, amongst a lot of other things, I do have a family too, I can get a bit obsessive about this. And recently I started a new aquarium. I was watching YouTube videos, reading various articles, visiting my local aquarium retailer to see what type of fish they had in stock, etc., etc. I sunk so much time into the preparation of this stupid little aquarium, really, if you think about it. <laughs> I'm really happy with it. <laughs> but if I'm honest, it started to take over a bit. Every evening, I would quickly scroll through my Pinterest for some inspiration, watch a YouTube video during a break in my work. <laughs> I'm really setting myself up here, aren't I? <laughs> Try to ignore the kids after dinner whilst reading something on my phone. It, it was what I was thinking about quite a lot of the time. Now, don't get me wrong. I was still reading my Bible and I was still praying and spending time with God, but I would find that I would be looking forward to researching my projects just a little bit more. It was quickly becoming my main desire. And this is what happens when you allow what isn't actually a bad thing in itself become more important than God. This is exactly what the Bible describes as an idol. Now, I've just shared one of my hobbies. I'd rather call it that than a passion, because having a passion about tropical fish just sounds a bit weird. But... I've <laughs> But I'm pretty sure I share other common passions with you all here. For instance, there are people in my life whom I love. I have children. Now, Psalm 127 describes children as a blessing and a gift from God. But these wonderful gifts can quickly and easily become our idols. As I mentioned earlier, I used to threaten God. If you ever take so-and-so away from me, I'll be so angry, so you better not. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that God is in heaven and he does what he pleases. So tiny created man here on earth shaking his fist at the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the entire universe who holds all of creation in the palm of his hand. That helps us to gain a better perspective of that foolery, doesn't it? But yet here I am placing my desires in the wrong place and proposing to God that I know best. God could have just stopped my heart beating there and then, but he was very gentle with me. When my eldest daughter Sophie was born, it was not the birth I was expecting. My wife had been induced and in the end required assistance to bring Sophie into the world. When Sophie finally arrived, she wasn't breathing and had to be revived. There we were in an operating theatre, and immediately after Sophie was born, she was whisked off to another table and surrounded by a team, whilst I was left holding my wife's hand. This was not a nice situation to be in, to say the least. But in that moment, I felt a choice was set before me. You can choose to trust me. Or you cannot. I felt an enormous weight lifted as I said the words in my heart, I give you to her, Lord. I trust you, come what may. You see, I could have prayed, Father, don't you dare. But God was helping me to learn how to pray. He was teaching me to trust him through a mental decision I was making to not focus on this newborn baby as the main object of my desire. 
God wanted first place in my life, and he wants the same in your life too. Sophie was revived, and she's now eight years old, and I love her dearly. I love her so much that every evening I pray with her and my other children and ask that God would give her joy and keep her safe and well, but above all else, that she would know her God, that she would call upon the name of the Lord, and that she would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray this because I want her to know and love the Lord as I do, and even more so. Whilst I love her, she is not the main object of my desire. Jesus is. Perhaps God is stirring something in you this morning. It's time to consider the idols in our lives, to recognise them as the first step. It may help to close your eyes so you can concentrate, but start to ask God in your heart to highlight them. What is creeping in? What desires are you putting before God? Are you trusting the promise of God that Jesus will one day return? For those of us here who call Jesus our Lord and Saviour, as we pause to hear from God, remember your first love for him, that first attraction, that wonderful melody he was making in your heart. You have entered the auditorium once again, and Jesus is lovingly inviting you to join in, and it's time to make the conscious decision to do so, to step up and push these desires down your priority list that are becoming obstacles for you. Give up any reluctance to join in. Remember, only he can fully satisfy you. Come again afresh. Ask him to help you. He has promised that he will. The rewards are here in this psalm. We will be like those who dream. Our mouths will be filled with laughter and tongue with shouts of joy. Not a quiet snigger, a shout of joy. Don't hear those many often these days, do you? You will be glad. We will enter into our eternal home with shouts of joy. It's a promise. So I'd like to encourage you to get out of the audience and join in with the orchestra, the choir of Jesus. I care so much for Zion that I have given up many hours over the past few weeks to prepare this message. For Jesus truly is my King. He's my Saviour. He's my Redeemer, my interceder, my friend. He's my brother, my desire, my passion, my strength and my shield, my deliverer, my conqueror. He is the image of the invisible God. He is life. He is hope. He brings light into the darkness. He is the sacrificial lamb and the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the first and the last, and through him all things were created, and for him all things were created. He is interceding for us at the Father's right hand. He holds the keys to heaven and hell. He has received authority over all things. All who call upon his name will be saved. All tongues and all tribes and all nations will bow down to him. He is the Son of Man. He is the Morning Star. He is the perfect judge. He is the great I Am. He is greater than all of the angels. He is love. He is sweet. He is kind and he is patient. He is our reward. He is our inheritance. He died and was raised to life as firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He is the mediator between a created man and an omnipotent God. He is worth so having as the main object of our desires. He loves us so intensely. He gave up his very life for us, the saviour of the world. He understands our struggle. He has been through it too. He gave up his heavenly place in paradise to save us. And he has sown in tears and returns with shouts of joy, bringing us with him. If you have yet to put your trust in Jesus, all of the above is available to you. Simply reach out in your heart today. If you do, please tell someone here so that we can help you with your new walk with God. I used to come to church and used to sit in the back row. And I used to scoff at what was said here on a Sunday morning. From there, I decided to start putting out chairs and helping on the setup team. And then I was a a tentative Christian. So someone who'd come along and be like, yeah, yes, it's for me. And just kind of, if it involved any kind of hardship or, I'll be like, no. But I've now realized that actually it's important to really put all your eggs in one basket. 
and go all out for Jesus. I've considered what the best this world has to offer. And I compare it with the good news of Jesus that he's offering you this morning. I think hands down it's the best offer you'll ever get.